This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this next story is about a subject called homelessness. And it's a serious social crisis that's mostly underreported in this country. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in television to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Dennis's story. Dennis says homelessness used to be that person you didn't know. Now, homelessness is your sons or your daughters, your sisters or your fathers. Here's Mark. Dennis. Yes. We're here in Los Angeles. Yes, we are. You're homeless. Yeah, unfortunately. Tell me about it. Um, well, through a uh, avalanche of unfortunate events um, and a bad relationship, which wiped me out financially, I ended up being um, a working actor, um, uh, actually a uh, big fish in a small pond out here in uh, California and regionally. Uh, moved to New York into an apartment that I couldn't afford, and after three years, my partner split and wiped me out financially. And so uh, I had to start again. And of course, you know, when you're when you're in that state, you know, and uh, you don't have anywhere to really turn to. My mother, my mother, I have family out here, of course. My mom uh, is uh, in a senior living situation where if she doesn't need constant care, um, uh, I don't qualify for the age requirements to live in the facility. So I would get jobs, various odd jobs, like, uh, you know, working at a restaurant um, during graveyard shifts and, um, you know, come home at like three, four, five in the morning in dark clothes and a rolling duffel bag, just in case I missed the bus. And uh, people in the environment thought that I was going to be there to burglarize them or rape them or kill oh, them. Geez. So I had to, uh, I had to leave. The, the manager gave her an ultimatum. They said either you leave or your son leaves. And so I, uh, of course, my mom, you know, can't be on the streets, and it, there was no question there. So I, I, I went out and. Um, I had a car. I had a car that was given to me by uh, a boss. I was singing at a church, and a boss of mine, uh, actually a guardian angel, um, took me under his wing and gave me one of his old cars. And um, that was great, except it started to break down very soon. And uh, I couldn't afford the registration. I couldn't see paying the registration on a car that wasn't running. So I kind of found an area where I kind of did a lot of business um, at a theater, a local theater in Orange County. and. Um, I was parking on the streets, and uh, so you're living in a broke-down car. I was living in a broken-down car. Yeah, uh, many of us, many of us do. I was in that car, off and on for the better part of a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, I lived in a kitchen pantry for a little while. I lived in a garage on a pool table for a little while. Wow. Um, and then there were several months where I was actually on the streets, on the streets, and uh, that's kind of what I'm facing now as um, I became a driver for the Lyft Corporation. Uh, Lyft is like Uber. And um, I had a rental car through Hertz, but one of my local street chums decided that they wanted to take off with my car. So unfortunately, um, you know, we're trying to locate it. 
and locate them, but hopes aren't very high. Uh, hope is in short supply when you're in kind of my position. Yeah, and that's going to hurt your credit and everything hurts your credit, else. hurts everything. But, but what hurts the most is, you know, the friends and the family that used to be there um, that when you get into this situation, um, everybody just chalks it up to drug abuse or bad choices. And, um, It's not always the case. Sometimes it's just the choice is made for you and you don't have any choice. So, um, other than hope, I guess, that some things will change. Thanks. Sometimes you, you work all you can. Everybody makes bad choices. You, you yeah. do everything you can. And it's like the world's fighting against you. Yeah. And you can't give up. Yeah. I guess so. I keep trying. I keep trying. I, was, I hope it's not in vain. I was out here 23 years ago for bunches and bunches of years. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Well, no, no. You can't give up. Live in hope. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. You know, sometimes three, four, or five second chances. Yeah. And, you know, it's not easy out here. You know, when the economy tanked and, you know, gas prices went up and food went up and everything's, you know, they say that the recession is over, but you don't really see much of the effect in the daily dollar, you know, and it's still hurting us greatly. There are, there are programs in place like EBT and, you know, food stamps and things like that, but anybody who knows anything can't live off of $187 a month on food that you can't have a refrigerator for or an oven or a microwave or we don't have the amenities of home. Right. So you buy things with preservatives, things that don't go bad, things that, you know, keep well on the streets in different temperatures and climates, and most of the time it gets stolen anyway, because even amongst the streets you have people who are taking whatever you have. Um, well, you're in pretty good spirits. I try. going through all this. I try. What would you want people to know about homelessness that they probably yeah. wouldn't know or they stereotype that's wrong? Right, well, um, you know, everybody, homeless people used to have, it used to be the class system. Um, homeless people used to be that person that you didn't know, that would talk to themselves, or that didn't bathe in the corner of a doorway, that everybody just walked by and overlooked. Oh, and there's my bus, that's okay though. Um, and everybody would just overlook. Um, but uh, they're now your sons, or your daughters, your sister, your brother, your cousins. Somebody in your family, the way that it's going, at some point in time, somebody in your family is going to be homeless. And um, if you think about that person that you overlooked in the past, um, and that were a member of your family, I would hope that you would have the heart and the humanity to do something different. And you've been listening to Dennis, and he's a, a homeless person in L.A. And Mark Horavath, well, he's the one doing the interviewing. And the project is called Invisible People. It's a 501c3 dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website, Invisible People TV. Mark Horvath's story, Dennis's story, and homelessness, the story of homelessness here in this country, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And this next story, well, it's close to our hearts because it's about radio, the golden age of American radio that lasted from the 1930s until the 1940s when radio was the primary source for news and entertainment for a country struggling with economic depression and then war. We like to go back and listen to these old broadcasts here on Our American Stories from time to time. Here's Jesse with the story of Tennessee Jed. Tennessee Jed radio program aired from 1945 to 1948 across the United States and was sponsored by Tip Top Bread. Here he goes, Tennessee. Get him. Got him. Dead center. That's Jed Sloan, Tennessee Jed. Deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Western Plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, by the bakers of enriched tip-top bread. Tennessee was the deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Plains in the days of the early West. And he was a man who upheld the law. He wandered the Western Plains with his trusty squirrel gun and horse, Smokey. Setting things right. Standing up for American virtue. During the capture of a big black mare as a fitting mate for his great horse Smokey, Tennessee overhears a nefarious plot to overthrow the United States government by renewing the war between the states of the Civil War. This episode originally aired December 1945. Tennessee, I figure you're heading for Sonora and palaver with the six-gun deputy. You're forgetting, son. The six-gun deputy is now Sonora's new sheriff, having replaced Mortimer Jackson. Yeah, but it's going to take quite a spell to get used to calling him anything besides deputy. Well, no matter what we calls him, I figure it's high time he's wised up on this here plan of starting war between the states all over again. You know, Tennessee, more you think about it, more likely it seems them no-goods we heard plotting on Dead Man's Plateau can do it. Does for a fact, son. There's a heap of unrest in Texas these here days. Yeah, Tennessee. When General Kirby Smith surrendered to federal forces, lots of his Confederate boys figured they should have kept on fighting. You're naming it straight, son. But that's all over, Tennessee. Texas is back in the Union. And war between the states is a closed book. Not to no goods what's hungry for power, son. What you mean by that, Tennessee? You see, Rod Boy, they's always unrest. If a body wants to stir it up. Even this late, they's enough to make it possible for a bunch of no-goods to start war between the states all over again. The way you lay it out, Tennessee, it listens like there's a good chance of government in Washington being overthrown. Listen, you can hold it. And best way I figure, Rod is turn the forces of law and order loose against them what's plotting against the United States. Meaning your first call is going to be on Sonora's new sheriff? Yes, son. Because if need be, Sonora's new sheriff can get word straight through to the president. I'd better get Smokey rigged. Smokey's sure going to cut 
quite a figure rigged out in that new saddle, Tennessee. And his rider's gonna feel mighty proud of sitting in a rod. Easy, smoky feller. Easy, boy. Won't take you long to get used to your new rigging. There. Oh, look at that, Rod. I know, Tennessee. Saddle skirt fits Smokey's back so snug you don't hardly need to use a girth. Girth? You mean cinch, don't you, Rod? Oh, girth and cinch is same things, Tennessee. Only here in Texas, we usually says girth. <laughs> Size light as you, Rod. They's hardly needed no matter what you calls them. Anyways, that's quite a saddle, boy. I'm going to take mighty good care of her. You just take care of yourself, Tennessee. If and something happens to keep you from reaching the sheriff in Sonora, plot to overthrow the government just might work. Don't you worry your head about me, Rod Boy. I can promise you. I's gonna be mighty cautious till we puts the kibosh on this here plan to start war between the states all over again. You do that, Tennessee. Cause if and anything goes wrong now. United States is a goner. Get up, Smokey boy. Goodbye, Tennessee. Goodbye, Rod. Come on, Smokey feller. Lay him down, boy. Lay him down. And such a disaster as a revival of the war between the states must be avoided at any cost. Tennessee races towards Sonora on his trusted Smokey to meet the sheriff. He hopes will avert a renewal of the war between the states. But his attention is drawn towards a suspicious-looking wagon coming his way. Up ahead, Smokey Feller. There's a heavy-loaded wagon coming in this way. There's something about them two fellers in it what I don't like at all. Ease up, Feller. Whoa, Smokey. Whoa, boy. Whoa. Whoa. Howdy, gents. You got prayed for Circle S? This here look like a freight wagon? Well, now, wagon is resting kind of heavy on the springs, like is moving a heavy load. Stranger, you're a young man with a long life ahead of you, providing you keep your nose out of other folks' business. Now, just a minute, gents. Cutting across Circle S property is all right, providing the reason for crossing is honest. Drive on, Pharaoh. We got no time for palavering with this Jasper. Get out, boss. Boss, whoa, whoa. I don't like having to cover you gents with my rifle. No, see here, you young weapon snapper. You keep your nose out of what's none of your business. That answer your question? Sort of, kind of squint, but not to my complete what you satisfaction. Guns and ammunition. Enough for outfitting a small army. In all property, a United States government. Now you see, Tennessee. Satisfied? I like a heap of being squint. Because I got me a notion these here guns and ammunition was stole from the United States government as part of a plan to renew war between the states. Is Tennessee right? Let's see if by discovering the guns and ammunition, Tennessee has nipped in the bud the plot to overthrow the government. These guns and ammunition I'm pretty confident were meant for taking over the U.S. government 
You heard, Miss Squint. And you too, Fero. This here guns and ammunition has been stole from the government. What are you doing with them? That's our business, Tennessee. And none of your... If and these stole guns and ammunition is part of the plan for starting war between the states all over again, gents, I'm making it my business. Now, now just where'd you get such a ridiculous notion, Tennessee? Is it a ridiculous notion, Pharaoh? Get him, Pharaoh! <laughs> <laughs> well, nice work, Pharaoh, nice work. You know, that Tennessee turned just at the right time for your gun butt to connect just right with his skull. Yes, Quint. This here hombre knows too much. Maybe so it'd be a good idea if he never comes to. Hmm. There's plenty of Jaspers like to be in our shoes right now, Pharaoh. Yes, Quint. I'll bet there is. Because... The easiest way to kill a man like Tennessee is when he's asleep or like he is now, unconscious. Well, how about that? For the first time ever, Tennessee Jed is unconscious at the mercy of two unprincipled thugs. And that's just about how every episode of the program ended, with a cliffhanger that just makes you want to hear the next episode. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Here he goes, Tennessee. Get him. Got him. Dead center. That's Jed Sloan, Tennessee Jed. Deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Western Plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday. By the bakers of enriched tip-top bread. And I'm sitting here like all of you going, what the heck happens next? We gotta know. Old school radio. Every once in a while we just like doing a blast from the past. American history on the airwaves. And thanks to Jesse as always for the stories he provides. Tennessee Jed here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, stories about love and death, and things you care about. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, produce them, and get some microphones over to you, and get a team out to you, and get the stories on the air. I would say one in five of our stories now are coming from you. And our next story, well, Alex Cortez brings it to us. Here's an unusual college president. Look, I was all over the place. We served in Germany, in Korea. I was in the 101st Airborne Division when we went into Iraq in 03 as one of the first groups across the border after shock and awe. I served a year in Afghanistan managing construction in, in Bagram for a year. The Army gave me more than I ever could have given it. 
Mike Rounds is an unusual college president of an equally unusual college. We have so many employers that want to hire these guys, not just for their skills, but for their character, for their leadership abilities. So we say, if you're a company you want to hire, you pay us to come to these career fairs. The two career fairs we had this year, we ran out of space both times, and we had a total of 175 companies from 14 states, and that's to hire 76 seniors, right? So that's crazy. I mean, there's no other school in the country that can say we have almost twice as many employers paying money to try to come and hire these guys than we have students. And it's a trade school. Williamson College of the Trades. In today's culture, it's become, well, you know, um, if I don't want to take advanced placement philosophy, write essays that are going to get me into, you know, Harvard, well, if I tell a counselor that I'd rather work with wood, now I get treated a certain way that isn't always very good. You're a Votech kid. You're not motivated. For our guys, they like to work with their hands. So they like the idea of working with wood or being outside or building something or fixing something. And so looking at that young man and saying, look, your abilities, desire, skills, interest in working with your hands is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, we need guys like you. Our two oldest sons graduated from Princeton, and I tell people this all the time. I mean, great school, but I don't believe that they had all the Princeton graduates multiply by 1.5 or 1.7 companies competing to hire those people. They just didn't, and I don't think there's anyone else in the country that can claim that, but we have it right here twice a year. You can come see it for yourself. And these kids with two job offers on average went to a college that's free, if you can believe that, who was founded by an awesome dude named Isaiah Williamson to be free. Vision of a philanthropist, a Quaker here in Philadelphia. He was a very wealthy man, and um, but also very frugal, and who said, I see these poor young men on the streets with no future, and I want to build a school where free of charge, they can get training in a trade and an education, moral and religious, and exercise and recreation to become useful, respected members of society. When he passed away, he left a million dollars to endow the school and a million to build it. So for 130 years, it's been doing that. And so it's still, every student that attends here is completely funded room, board, and tuition. Outside of a few student fees, and then equate to probably less than $2,000 over the three years that they're here, everything is provided for them. And they're all young men from some pretty extreme need. We have over 400 applicants for only 100 spots, so we focus on the young men that first have the capability and the desire to go through this challenging program, but then the next default goes back to who has the most financial need. And that's the neat part of it. This run really like a military academy. Early morning, they're up, they clean their room and their common areas. They come out in front of the flagpole, 715, and they stand at attention and watch the flag go up and get inspected for their appearance and breakfast and chapel. And we pack their day full of class and shop and activities. So it's an intense environment. They have to be clean shaven. The first two years, the senior year, they're allowed to have a, uh, a neatly trimmed beard or mustache. But that's part of the inspection in the morning. Their shoe shine, do they look presentable? They have clean clothes on. They're all in coat and tie. Well, you can imagine that, you know, most of the kids that come here have never owned a coat and tie. So we actually have a clothes closet. People donate gently used coats, suits, shoes, belts. 
And so that's what the guys wear. Every day when they come to line up and every meal, they're in coat and tie. And then when they go to the shop, they change into their shop clothes. But that's, that's another unique part of Williamson, I guess. But why wear a coat and tie at all? I mean, it's not the uniform for most trade jobs. It's interesting, where did that idea come from? It's kind of been here forever. One of the reasons was that when Mr. Williamson wrote his deed of trust, he designated a board of trustees, and on that board of trustees was a guy named John Wanamaker. And John Wanamaker's famous store in Philadelphia, and for many, many years, they would go down to Wanamaker's store and they would fit them with two suits. And it was always part of the culture here. Years later, that dried up, but then the idea of continuing to have them in coat and tie. And just to give you an idea, last year's freshman class, when we averaged the family's taxable income per family member, it came out to $4,200. So very few of them have owned a coat and tie. And we don't have a uniform factory putting them in a uniform, but to say this is our standard and we recognize that you probably we don't have the means to acquire that stuff, so that's why we run the clothes closet. And I really think that it changes even subconsciously how they view themselves. And I think they really feel like they're part of something special, maybe for the first time in their lives. And it's how they carry themselves, how they think of themselves. It's all part of that. And I think having them dress the way we have them dress and groomed the way that they groom is all part of building that confidence in themselves. Is zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, one offense, you're out. As a Catholic, hearing that was painful. I'm Catholic too, and I, I'm, a, I'm a social drinker. I like beer, but I always tell them the story that, hey, I was a lieutenant colonel in Afghanistan for a year, and general order number one was no alcohol. And I like beer, and I like to drink socially, but I knew the rule was the rule. And I didn't argue with it and say, oh, I'm a colonel, I shouldn't have to do that. Or I, I just said, that's the rule. It's very clear, and you have to make a decision. You know, are you, are you going to chance it, or are you going to not do it? The only sure way to not get something to happen is to avoid it. And, you know, as you transition from being a high school student to being a, a grown man who's starting to make decisions about the, your future, you need to put yourself with the kind of people that are making better decisions than that. It is strict, but for a lot of these guys, the discipline and structure is what sets them apart when the employers come. The day of the career fair, all you got to do is just walk through the gym and ask these companies, you're here from Kentucky, California, why? What do you? And they will tell you exactly why they come and try to hire Williamson guys. It has as much to do with the discipline and character pieces of these guys as it does to do with the specific skills they may have been trained in in their individual program. Here's one Williamson student on the day of his graduation. I had eight job offers when I took the one I have now, and they're still rolling in. I got a phone call yesterday for another one. How many college graduates have employers actively seeking them for employment? And I think that's one thing about this place. Like, besides everything else that this place has to offer, you will graduate with a job, guaranteed. If you want it, you got it. And we're going to continue with this story after a commercial break. And it came to us from one of our friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And his name's Mark Murray, and he told us about Williamson College of the Trades, and we jumped right on it. And some folks from there have visited Williamson and are now looking to bring its model to their community with a Catholic trade school called Harmel. Your community can do this too, by the way, and that's why we bring you these stories. Stories have a tremendous 
imitative power and just shipping our kids off to college to accumulate debt with no discernible skills after just can't continue. And we keep hearing this from our listeners. that This is such a big concern of theirs. And reach out to Mike Rounds, the president, and take a visit. Every region in America could use a Williamson College. By the way, I was particularly taken aback, not just that they're teaching the trades, but more important, they're teaching character. That suit thing is great. And I love it when Mr. Round said it changes how these kids view themselves, how they carry themselves, and how they think of themselves. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Williamson College of the Trades with Mike Rounds, the president. This is Our American Stories. return to the story of Williamson College of the Trades, a trade school outside of Philadelphia, but not your ordinary trade school, folks, a a product of great generosity and philanthropy. And we're talking to its president, former military man, Mike Rounds. Let's pick up where we last left off. Every day we go to a short 15 minute chapel before we head off to class at eight. And I get up early so I can get over there. I'm a former military guy, so I'm used to, I get up at 4.30, I get out and head over to the YMCA, get a workout in, get back and try to be over here a little before 7.30 so that I can start my day, just just not, not to show my face there, but because I really, I think that's a unique part of being at Williamson is the opportunity to start each day in chapel thinking about what's really important. When you apply to Williamson, you don't have to say, I'm a Christian. But as part of the interview process, we tell you the things that are unique about Williamson, and that includes going to daily chapels. So although a student doesn't have to sign a profession of faith or stand up and say anything, they do understand that just like everything at Williamson, you can't opt out. So you are required to be there in your seat, ready to go when we start chapel at 730. Be respectful, stay awake. But for the guys that have that peace in their life, it's a great connecting point. There's a lot of fellowship opportunities So that, to me, is something I really love about Williamson. It's pretty special. It's pretty special of President Rounds, too. Most college presidents aren't involved with the students like this. Service is also one of our core values. And we have a whole week, the May, after final exams, we take the next week, and everybody gets involved in a service project. Staff, faculty, students, off campus, all around the area. And just the idea of like, hey, Guys, you know, uh, Mr. Williamson and many others have made this possible for you. So now give back yourself. Make that part of who you are. Serve your community. Find places where you can contribute your skills, talent, time, whatever. Pay it forward. Here's some more Williamson students on the day of their graduation. My roommate, Richie, I think it might have been freshman year or junior year, he pulled over on the side of 202 and fixed somebody's flat tire. And every time I'm driving, I look for somebody on the side of the road. If they have a flat tire, I, I try to stop if I can, or even just someone needs money. Like, you see somebody struggling with gas, if they're five bucks in there, it's just the little stuff that, like, it becomes a habit. Like, I want to do it now. And I truly think it's the people around me and this place that makes me do it. You create that culture by two things, I think. First, being together. If you came here with a family that's falling apart or struggling, you come here and you build another one. 
I don't think this place would work if we just had these guys show up in the morning, take a couple classes, and then just go back to wherever they came from. They live together in dorms of 24 with a dorm parent that lives there full-time with them. They do everything together. Over three years, they build very strong bonds. Uh, my experience freshman year, my grandfather passed away, and I was pulled out of class early morning. And by the time I got to the hospital, I checked my phone, and I had several texts from about 20 to 30 different guys asking me how I'm doing, how you're holding up, is there anything we can do? And I was with my immediate family, but I knew in the back of my head, you know, I got another family back at school that they're really there to help me. So that's, that hit hard. We call it a brotherhood, right? I mean, that's what we tell them. This is a brotherhood. Like, your buddies you hung out with in high school are not living their life to the same standard you are. I had a um, close friend, well, still my close friend, in uh, high school, senior year, um, when I told him I was thinking about coming to Williamson. You know, first thing was, I was all boys school. You know, in high school, that's the last thing you want to hear for college. <laughs> but, I forgot about that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, the three years, the three, now I'm in my third, well, now I'm a graduate, actually, and, uh, which is awesome. I'm a graduate, and, uh, you know, he's, he's just like, oh, man, I wish I went to that school. You know, he owes crazy amounts of money. He's struggling in school, he's struggling to keep up with the payments. And now it's just like, he's looking at me and he's like, you're about to graduate. You know, so if I could talk, or you're a graduate, I'm sorry. So if I could talk to, uh, <laughs> if I could talk to, um, if I could talk to any high school student, I would tell them, make the mature decision. You know, it's hard to get through to them because they're coming out of high school, but you gotta really look at yourself in the mirror and say, am I going to the NBA? <laughs> Am I going to be this big music star? Or, you know, I'm not saying not to chase your dream, but Williamson will it'll give you direction. It'll put you in a position. Something small as, uh, you know, going to North Dakota for the summer. That was a, like I went to North Dakota for a summer to work, and I had never been on a plane before. You know, so my first time getting on a plane was through Williamson. I got that experience through Williamson, so it's just... I think they should make the mature decision. You gotta really look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do I need to do as a man? <clears throat> Not as what I'm seeing on television or what I see in movies or what this kid did or that kid did, because you gotta make the decision for yourself, so. That is the environment we wanna create. And, you know, it can be tough. I mean, in an environment like that where there's a lot of rules and a lot of consequences when you don't meet, it can become kind of a negative, right? At the worst, it could almost become like a prison camp environment, but it's not, just like it's not at a military academy because the focus of what we're trying to teach them in leadership, so with the seniors, as you progress through as a freshman, you're in the shop at the same time as the seniors. So the seniors are responsible for training the freshmen, directing them to lead it with a positive attitude, but to direct somebody, to inspect their work, to correct them when they need it, but in the big picture, right, to be enthusiastic and, and what you want is that freshman looks at that senior and says, wow, that guy is so squared away. That guy, I want to be like him when I'm a senior. That's what you want. My freshman year coming in, it was always like watching the seniors. Like I was always looking at the seniors, just paying attention, even when they didn't think we was paying attention what they was doing. And it just really hit that, uh, you know, as a senior to lead, you can't 
just tell, we was, you can't just tell the freshmen to do this. You have to tell them to do this and then they have to see you doing what you told them to do on a daily basis. And that's, uh, you know, that's something, that's one of the core values that stuck with me too, integrity. I mean, any, any leader can lead through fear and intimidation and being negative. That's a way to get somebody to do something. But when you lead by example and are a role model and inspire and motivate, then people will run through walls for you. And that's the culture we're trying to build here at Williamson. As we train our students through a three-year leadership program, that culminates in them basically being in charge in the shops and working with the freshmen. We have five of our trustees. It's kind of neat. We have 20 trustees, 10 that are just love our mission, have no connection to it family-wise. Five that are sons of graduates, right? Their dads came here. They didn't go here, but because their dads did, they were very successful and they had other opportunities and they themselves were successful. But they say that Williamson altered the path of my whole family by my dad coming here. And then five that are graduates, including our chairman, who is Bill Bonneberger, who was a brick mason from Tamaqua, coal country, and came here and went to work for Toll Brothers for six years and met his wife there. And the two of them decided to quit and start their own home building company and they're now like the 10th largest home builder in the Philadelphia area right and then Art Lalo is class of 79 PhD Art Lalo he it is a great story too because he he was a he was a machinist and he <laughs> he's sitting in the last week of class before graduation at the time and a Boeing guy comes in and says who wants to work for Boeing and Art's like mm, that sounds like a good company and raised his hand and the guy took down a name and said, all right, show up Monday at this gate, come in, blah, 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 do this. And then he walks out of the room. And Art said, uh, told the shop instructor, so is that the interview Monday? He goes, no, that was the interview. He's expecting you to start work Monday at Boeing. So, <laughs> so Art graduated Saturday, went to work for Boeing. He's still working there 32 years later. He went to night school on Boeing's dime for 22 years. He got a bachelor's, two master's, and a PhD, and is an adjunct professor at Widener in addition to being a senior project manager. We got Tom Goki, who's class of 81, a machinist who's the president and CEO of Millicron. And Millicron's headquartered in Cincinnati, has I think 7,500 employees worldwide, and he's president and CEO. And then John Barnes, power plant class of 84, is the COO of Exelon. And Exelon is a monstrous company, but he's the COO, right? So all those guys can stand in front of our students and say, hey, I started just like you. And the things they're teaching at Williamson will give you the tools to be as successful or more successful than, than I have been. So it's up to you. Again, it's about them coming in here with little confidence and then seeing as they build their own confidence and seeing the opportunities. It's a neat thing to see. Uh, you're literally breaking a cycle of poverty for most of these kids. And great job, as always, to Alex, who brings us such interesting stories. And this is a great one, folks. And again, you know, we hope people will copy this. If you've got some net worth or know somebody who does in your community, my goodness, take a visit to this remarkable school, Williamson College of the Trades, and Mike Rounds would be happy to hear you. And if you're listening and you want to just send a donation, well, Williamson College of the Trades, Google it, send a check, and your money will go to good use. You heard it in the voices of those young folks. By the way, Dr. Jack Templeton of the Templeton Foundation got to know Williamson and his foundation. He wondered whether they were actually getting the results that they thought they were, so he commissioned a three-year multi-million dollar project with Tufts University to study Williamson and a few other comparable schools and found that on average, Williamson was just killing it. 
Their students scored higher on character attributes like reliability, excellence, competence, and connection to other students. And my goodness, these are big deals. Tufts also concluded that Williamson's system of structure and rules and its brotherhood environment were very important to the cultivation of the character we just talked about. This is Our American Stories, the story of Mike Rounds, the story of Williamson College of the Trades, and in the end, the story of American generosity, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, from the arts to commerce to history, and sometimes, well, sometimes some tough stories and some sad stories about loss, eulogies, and then, well, whatever happened to whomever? Whatever happened to that guy, that girl, that actor, that actress, that musician? We love those stories, too, and this is one of them. Like his spectacular passes and jaw-dropping runs, Michael Vick's path of redemption, well, it seemed endless. His life, it was a dance between triumph and trouble on and off the field. This four-time Pro Bowl quarterback was the most thrilling player of a generation, and he became the most reviled. Vick grew up in the roughest part of Newport News, Virginia, also known as Bad News. Michael lived in the Ridley Circle housing projects where gangs, drugs, and pit bulls were just white noise. It was here where he witnessed two local boys become professional athletes, NFL quarterback Aaron Brooks and NBA All-Star Allen Iverson. Vic knew football was his way out. By 2004, at the age of 24, Vic was the NFL's main attraction, Atlanta Falcons owner Arthur Blank rewarded Vic with a record $130 million contract. His dad, he didn't pay any attention to the kids. You know, I did everything. My dad liked to run the streets. You know, my dad liked to do his thing. My dad really went down the wrong path. Growing up with a dad that was on drugs, that was abusive to his mother. It's some things that he probably wanted from that relationship, but just couldn't get. It's like, is this the role that I take in life? Is this the role that I want to take in life? With the uh, first selection in the 2001 NFL Draft, the Atlanta Falcons select Michael Vick, quarterback, Virginia Tech. Oh, baby, the Vick era is here. There's just not that many that can play quarterback the way he could play quarterback. Oh, what a throw by Vic! It just looked like something out of a video game. Out there freestyling, just doing crazy things. This guy is a big-time player. He was just so much faster than anybody else on that field. I'm sure when he was a kid and played tag, he was never in. like having Barry Sanders back there as your quarterback. The most dynamic, athletic quarterback 
that there ever was. You know, almost being like a, a superhero, you know, in a town that needed a superhero. You have just seen Michael Jordan of the NFL. This guy had everything and he risked it all and ended up losing it all because he wanted to have dogs fight against each other. What planet are we on? I have a developing story to tell our viewers about right now. I was actually on the golf course in Atlanta. Yeah! Oh my gosh, look at that thing. Right down the middle, good job, Mike. When my best friend called me and told me, I knew it was over. You know, the things that I was trying to hide for so many years or thought I could get away with uh, was now coming to light. How could a football star making literally millions of dollars allegedly get involved in something like this? Allegations of hanging, shooting, body slamming, even electrocuting dogs to death as part of a multi-state underground dog fighting operation is a record-breaking NFL superstar, a former number one draft pick, losing a $120 million contract over dog fights. Michael Vick pled guilty to federal dog fighting charges. Approximately six to eight dogs were killed by various methods, including hanging and drowning, and then buried on the property. 66 pit bulls were saved. Michael Vick spent two months in Northern Neck Regional Jail in Richmond, Virginia, and another 16 months in Leavenworth Federal Prison. And then he was released. Well, recently, Michael Vick was invited to speak at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. It is here where Vick tells his story. It's the story of a man who seemed to have everything and then had to start from nothing all over again. Vic's story starts with his childhood and the moment he knew he had a special gift to play football. My upbringing was like, you know, probably like 70% of uh, most, you know, African-American young kids. You know, I grew up in poverty, um, you know, very poverty-stricken area, um, you know, surrounded by a lot of friends, a lot of things going on in the neighborhood that I grew up in, a lot of influences. You know, just the ordinary lifestyle, you know, of a, of a you know, young black kid, um, but, you know, with aspirations. I knew I had a gift, you know, when I was about seven years old. Like, every day my motivation was to go outside and, you know, do something better to try to better myself at the game that I love at such a young age. And uh, I didn't understand my passion, you know, back then when I was when I was that young. I just wanted to have fun doing it, but... Everybody around me always, you know, told me that I looked different from everybody else. And I think it was because, you know, at a young age, I always practiced. Michael Vick knew that in order to have a life that was going to be different than those who grew up around him, he had to be different. His grandmother offered him some wisdom. I know it was a lot of challenges growing up in the neighborhood that I was in. And, you know, I always felt like, you know, I needed an edge. I needed to have a different visualization of what everybody else in the neighborhood did. I wanted to be different. You know, even though we grew up together, even though we all ran together, had fun together, I wanted to be different. So, you know, my aspirations was to make it to the NFL. And I told my grandmother that at a young age, and I told her I would do anything to get there. And she told me, if you're going to be successful in life, you, got to, you have to find God at some point. And, 
you know, that always stuck with me. So I'm like, at a young age, I'm like, what can I do to incorporate God into my life? Do? When I don't know, ain't really know anything about, you know, God or, you know, the Bible or how to interpret it. And I just came to the conclusion, I just put the Bible under my pillow and sleep with it under my pillow until <laughs> something good happened. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a life, well, lost and then gained. Michael Vick's story, here on Our American Stories. our American stories we continue with the story of Michael Vick the rest of the story as most of you probably have heard about his athletic prowess and how he squandered it all I'm sure you heard what he did to those dogs and you hated him for it because the country hated this guy and so we had just heard from him at a church and this was him telling his story to the the people in that church and he's going around the country telling his story now to young people old people anyone who'll listen Actually, how did you get there, right? How do you get from being the highest paid athlete in NFL history to killing dogs? And what's going on in your head that you'd allow that to happen? We just heard about the advice his grandmother had given him, that if you want to be successful in life, you've got to bring God into your life. Well, let's return to Michael Vick and his story. He was the star quarterback in high school and chose Virginia Tech as the college that would launch him as a star. But like all great QBs, Vick had a backup. A plan A and a plan B. Plan B, I wanted to uh, major in criminology. It was really my backup plan. My plan was plan A. I was to make it, you know, to make it to the NFL. And, you know, I was so determined to do whatever it took to make that happen that I couldn't see my plan B. So my determination was so strong that I wouldn't allow anything to come into my life to negate that. After reaching the highest heights of Plan A, Vic fell to the unimaginable Plan Z, a life in prison. He left behind his wife and his three kids. Well, I think I lost focus. Um, and it's so easy to do. You know, you, you, you feel like you, you know, once you receive all these blessings, you feel like you've arrived. And I, I can honestly say I felt as if there was nothing else that needed to be done, but I, I lost sight of Everything that got me to that point, you know, my beliefs, you know, no more sleeping with the Bible under the pillow, no more saying my prayers at night. My, my grandmother instilled that in my brothers and sisters and my entire family. You know, ask God for something that you, you really want, and you never know when you may get it. And I did that all the way up until I was drafted. Uh, once I got drafted, you know, I started living a different life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't rigorous. It wasn't, you know, crazy. You know, I, I did everything to try to make sure I, you know, did what I was supposed to do. And at the same time, I had, you know, I was straddling the fence. You know, I always told myself I didn't want to be a product of my environment. Uh, I always wanted my environment to be a product of me. But at the same time, I brought some of those same values with me. When I turned 23, 24, and I had some money, and I was able to, you know, just do anything that I wanted to do and, you know, lost focus and, 
and uh, ended up ended up ended up in prison. Vic responded to the notion that his punishment was due to discrimination. You know, first and foremost, you know, we all make got to make decisions, and I think that's what. You know, I had every right to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And it's so easy to do the wrong thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's the easiest thing to do. You know, it's hard when you got to make a decision based on, um, you know, a positive outcome. And, you know, I had influences around me. But, you know, I think as a grown man at 24 years old and, you know, everything that I received in my life, you know, I was supposed to take a step back and really look at my life as a whole and the people that I affected and the people that, you know, really cared about me, you know, a lot of the Atlanta Falcons organization, you know, my mom and dad, um, my co- college coaches, you know, anybody who, you know, put time and effort into me. And, and la- you know, last of all, you know, God, the reason I really was in the position, the reason I'm here today. It's the easiest thing to do, the wrong thing. It's just the easiest thing to do. And that's all of us, folks. Vic also said that, well, losing his freedom was tough. Quote, I still think I went to prison because there were certain people I needed to get away from. So it was bigger than dogfighting. It was done to bring awareness to bad. It was done to show that regardless of who you are, you will get punished and you are not above the law. And for me, it was a message of don't lose sight of how you got here. Stay humble. Here's Vic on day one in prison. When I first got into prison, when they first uh, closed the door, it was like, um, it was like a dream. And, you know, at that point, I felt like everything in in life, you know, has to have an expiration date that's not positive. The things that I was doing, I was not going to stop. So that was my expiration date when that door closed. You know, I I wanted to get out so bad. It was not, it was out of my control. You know, and the only thing I could do was just kind of, you know, look up and think about what I had done and, you know, kind of ask God to forgive me for what I had done and ask God to help me. And I wanted it all right then. Every time the the God came to the door and put the key in the door, I was hoping that there was somebody that was coming in to free me. And that was just the first day, you know, and I... (laughs) (laughs) That was the first day. (laughs) I ended up doing 465 more after that. My goodness. But... Prison was his expiration date. That is, of course, the old Michael Vick. He looked to God, but it didn't take long for him to realize that God wasn't going to unlock his cell and live his life for him. Vick realized his life required personal responsibility and obedience. You know, I always looked at myself as, you know, God's child. You know, I'm praying at night, like saying the hardest prayers that I can pray. But I know it's a mutual respect and a relationship that you have to have with God. You know, I didn't want to disrespect that relationship and put a strain on it. So, you know, I just told myself I got to be patient. Those doors are not going to open when I want them to. And, you know, I have to, you know, put my focus on things that's going to be positive reinforcement when I get out. And, you know, it wasn't until then when when they opened the doors and they let me out. You know, it was a new era for me, you know, in my whole walk. Vic discussed overcoming life's obstacles. It was so far-fetched. You know, because all you hear about is the reasons that you can't make it. You know, you know you're small. You know, you, you know, the, the NFL doesn't, um, you know, have they have a limited number of black quarterbacks. You know, which is, you know, something that you know is, is should be overlooked. 
and something that I wanted to change, and, and, and I did. And I was, I was just kind of able to just shift my focus to, you know, doing all the right things, and I did it. But just in the position that I was in, why would you, why would you risk that? Why would you sacrifice that um, for things that, you know, really didn't make no sense or was morally wrong? And, you know, so I look at it in that sense. You know, mm-hmm. I felt like I should have been more of a mature person and, and was, should have been able to not be a product of my environment, which I didn't want to be. Here are some things that have changed about post-prison Michael Vick and what his plans are post-football. You know, I try to think before I speak. I try to think before I react. Um, I try to weigh all the options, pros and cons, before any decision is made on anything in my life. You know, I think I'm a better teacher, you know, starting with my kids and, you know, a better leader, you know, in the locker room. And just, you know, with my overall family, I feel like I'm responsible for them. And every decision that they make, I want it to be a reflection in themselves and a reflection of me. So that's a great responsibility within itself. Um, and I feel like it's, it's more out there for me. I feel like football was just only a facet of my life, and I was able to accomplish that goal. And I think it's time to kind of put that to rest and try to figure out what my, you know, my next calling is. And I'm just going to let it flow. I'm going to let it come. I'm not going to rush it. I'm not going to ask God to give it all to me at one time. I'm just let it happen. And he's letting it happen. And again, this talk was at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And he's showing up at churches and gatherings around the country. And I think it's almost going to be a ministry of sorts for him, talking to young men about their choices, especially when they get blessings, because that's when you can really just throw everything away. And talking about that environment, and you don't have to be a product of your environment. It's nonsense. You can actually affect the environment. And you've got to teach people this. Or, well, what other options are there for them? Michael Vick's story, by the way, after serving his sentence, he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2009. As a member of the Eagles for five years, he enjoyed the greatest statistical season of his career and was named to the fourth Pro Bowl in 2010. His official retirement from professional football came in 2017, and he was immediately hired by Fox Sports as an analyst for Fox NFL Kickoff. Michael Vick's story, by the way, we just love because, well, if you believe in redemption and you don't have to be a person of faith to believe in it, uh, then you're rooting for people. When they, when they make bad decisions. And here on this show, we root for people all the way through, all the way down the line. This is Lee Habib, Michael Vick's story, a story of redemption, of love, and we'll be bringing you more like it here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do, share it with friends, and if you have stories like this in your life, and I know you do, You just do. Share them. Don't be ashamed of them. Share them. Share them loud. Own your failures. Own your mistakes. It makes you more human. It allows you to connect with your fellow man. Again, this is Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we also want to hear from you. Our favorite stories have been stories from our listeners. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And this next segment, well, it's one of our favorites, because it combines two things we love. Well, the story and music. And this is the story of a song, and we've done a whole bunch. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and go up to our topics bar, and you can click that section, and you'll hear Ray Manzarek talking about Riders on the Storm and Light My Fire by the Doors. There Goes My Life, the Kenny Chesney hit. A terrific story behind that song, and the songwriter's version of the Chesney hit, Kenny didn't write the song, is just beautiful. Jesus Take the Wheel, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, and even the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, a heck of a story about a modern studio masterpiece. And now, let's hear from Greg Hengler, who brings us another great story of a song. Toledo, Ohio-based Sanctus Reels lead guitarist Chris Roman shared the story behind Lead Me, our next installment of our Story of a Song series. Our lead singer, Matt Hammett, had most of the song written. It was written after Matt and his wife had a pretty gut-wrenching conversation where she told him that she needed him to be a better spiritual leader to her and the family. Matt said that he found it humbling that his wife would have the courage to say something like that out of love. Secondly, he realized that he had to do something about it. That's where the song came from. The idea is actually at least a year and a half old. We had a rough idea of the song because he had a demo, but it got put in a pile. The president of our record label somehow found the song before we completely finished the record and said, something's going on with that song. I think it could really be turned into something special if you guys finished it. Until he said that, we hadn't even entertained the thought of putting the song on the record. When we went in the studio to finish the song with this writer from Nashville, the story came together perfectly. Here's Matt and his wife Sarah sharing with us the story of their song, Lead Me. Hey, I'm Matt from Sanctus Real, and this is the story behind the song, Lead Me. Lead Me is a song that I wrote for my wife and my kids. My wife and I have been married for nine years, been best friends for almost 11 now. We have two beautiful little girls, and we actually have our third uh, baby, a little boy on the way who's due in September. God's blessed us with a a great marriage, but we're also very open about um, some of the conflict and some of the struggle that we've had in our marriage. I love my husband. We have a great relationship, but it's been hard at times. And the hard part has been resolving conflict. A couple years ago, it just got to a a point where it felt like the wall between us was just growing so big. And I remember I'd come home off the road and I'd just be totally worn out. I needed Matthew to come home and be strong for us and just be the rock and the leader that we all needed in our home. Resolving conflict peacefully and quickly has been our main struggle. My kids were being affected by it. I realized in those moments, we've got we've to step it up and figure this out for real and not just say we're going to figure it out and do nothing about it. We need to figure it out and fix it. 
but so painful to feel so distant from the person that you want to be so close to in this life, the person who you love the most. We got to a place where we had to make a decision. Either we work on the marriage or you know, some people might take the path of divorce, which was not an option for us. We decided that we were going to fight for our marriage. I hadn't been a great spiritual leader to my family. I felt at times I was weak and I needed him to be the strength in our home. I hadn't really listened to her heart the way that I should have. It was time for me to change. I went before the Lord and I just said, God, you know what, if I'm going to lead my family, then I need you to lead me. And wrote the guts of the song, Lead Me, as the cry of a wife to be loved by her husband the cry of kids to be led by their dad, and then the prayer of, of a daddy and a husband to be loved by God, and the most important and most difficult task of building my home on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. I look around and see my wonderful life almost perfect. From the outside In picture frames I see my beautiful wife Always smiling But on the inside Oh, I can hear her saying Lead me with strong hands Stand up when I can't Don't
I think the challenge for me in the song, and hopefully for other men as well, is every time I hear it, every time I sing it, I have to ask myself, what kind of man am I? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, what kind of man am I today? Have I invested in my family emotionally and spiritually the way that God's called me to reach out to them and to lead them? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And and the lyrics here, I know we call this our home, but I still feel alone. And what a truthful line. Any married couple knows that loneliness. It happens in, in, in couples. And how do you bring that together? And how does it not end in divorce? We bring a lot of classic songs here uh, to this show. And every once in a while, we bring a new one because we think it's a good one. Sanctus Reels Lead Me, the writer Matt Hammett. But my goodness, this is a co-creation, Matt and his bride. It's about them both. Their story, the story of a song here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Rule of Law series, where our own Alex Cortez brings us stories about how this rule of law thing silently shapes the world around us, without us even knowing it. Yo toco. El violín, I por play la the paz. violin. I play the violin for peace. Por la libertad. For freedom. Mi nombre es Willy Arteaga. Vengo de una familia muy humilde que me prohibió ir a la escuela. My name is Willy Arteaga. I come from a humble family, a family that prohibited me from going to school. Por eso tuve que aprender todo lo que sé por internet. That's why I had to use the internet to learn everything I know. Aprendí a tocar violín con videos de YouTube. I learned to play the violin by watching YouTube. You're hearing a translator because Wooly is from Venezuela. Una nación prácticamente destruida. A nation that's almost been destroyed. Solamente el último año, millones de personas han salido a la calle en protesta. Just in the last year, millions of people have come out on the streets in protest. Here's the Foundation for Economic Education's Larry Reed. When he was around 20 years of age, he began protesting in the streets of Caracas. And that's because he saw firsthand the violence of the Maduro socialist dictatorship. Right now, socialist dictator Nicolas Maduro ordering his army to open fire on Venezuelans attempting to cross the Brazilian border as they search for necessities. This regime of Nicolas Maduro has, from day one, tried to take all other branches of government and make them mere pawns of the executive branch. The Supreme Court of Venezuela today is just a rubber stamp for him. The National Assembly, he makes sure that they really don't have any real legislative power. 
and the result is the collapse of the rule of law, a brutal one-party tyranny that shuts down freedoms of speech and press and assembly, that controls virtually every aspect of the economy and has driven the country to impoverishment. This is a country that was the richest in Latin America barely a generation or two ago, and now it's one of, if not the poorest. The average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds in the last couple of years, reflecting the fact that food is increasingly scarce. They just don't have the things that socialists are fond of promising, but rarely deliver. Socialists never bake a bigger pie. They simply quarrel amongst themselves about the best way to divvy up a shrinking pie. The money issued by the socialist government that is now near worthless is being used for toilet paper because socialist regimes always run short of toilet paper. And it's also being used to make baskets. So very non-monetary purposes. You know, in America, we would never think of that. But that's what's being done in Venezuela today because the money has become virtually worthless. The government has been printing paper boulevards like there's no tomorrow. And that's the source of the soaring prices. Inflation in Venezuela this year is likely to be measured in the millions of percent. What that does to people is just so awfully tragic. They can't save, they can't invest, they have no hope for the future because the economy is just falling apart. Venezuela is a country gripped with a nightmare. A principios de este año, un compañero mío, Armando Cañizales, fue asesinado en una de estas protestas. One of my colleagues, Armando Carrizales, was murdered in one of these protests. Pero yo me rebelé y fui a tocar por él y por millones de venezolanos. But I continued playing for him and for millions of Venezuelans. Pero en respuesta fui atacado con gases lacrimógenos, con cañones de agua. Me golpearon con mi propio violín. In response, the government has attacked me with tear gas, with water cannons. They even beat me with my own violin. There was an incident in the summer of July 2017 when the police fired rubber bullets at him and hit his face, causing some serious injuries, and also broke his violin. And there would be no violin when they put him in prison. Me quemaron el cabello con un encendedor. And that wasn't enough. They also burned my hair with a lighter. He was beaten and he thought he was going to die. Willie was becoming very well known throughout Venezuela as they saw and heard of his leading protests with his violin. So his arrest and torture in Venezuelan jails only made him even more of an object of admiration on the part of many Venezuelan people. In comparison with algunos, yo la he tenido prácticamente fácil porque muchos no salen de la cárcel sino que mueren. In comparison with some of them, I have actually had it easy because many of them have not even left the prison yet. Los asesinan. Some of them have been murdered. Willie was released from prison. He made his way as in the case with so many, to Colombia, then got a flight to New York.
The flow of human traffic is a, an ongoing verdict on the success or failure of any society. And in Venezuela right now, you're seeing an exodus in one direction. More than 3 million people, more than 10% of the population of the country has left in just recent years. And they're coming not to other socialist nations or communist nations, they're going to much freer places, and they always have. This is always a sign that freedom is what people want. I asked Willie recently through a friend who speaks Spanish what Willie thought the difference was between the two countries and what his expectations were when he came here and how well they have been met. And he was quick to say that the difference between Venezuela and the United States is the difference between hell on earth and heaven on earth. When he came here, he, of course, didn't know anything about the country other than its reputation for freedom. He knew that uh, uh, he would be allowed to come in and hopefully given political asylum. But other than that, he, he thought that uh, going to New York might be risky, that the crime rate would be something to worry about. But now he has settled in and he feels as though the crime even in the Bronx is next to nothing compared to what he experienced back in Caracas. He tells the story of a singer named Marley that he came upon while passing through 34th Street around midnight. There were people around, but she was singing with such inspiration that her eyes were closed. And he was reminded when he saw that of his playing back in Venezuela during the protests. Willie says he can now play with his eyes closed in New York City without worrying about police or paramilitaries attacking him. A stark contrast between the absence of the rule of law and the presence of it. One place you can't close your eyes in the streets and another you can. He's come to know other musicians and now sometimes he plays with five or six other musicians like a concert. Something which he couldn't do in the streets of Venezuela. No other musician would bear with him the rule of lawlessness that was killing their art. And he loves how open New Yorkers are. They never hesitate, he wrote, to show him if they like his music. And perfect strangers coming up and offering him $100 uh, simply because they love his music or they know his message. And they know what he's been through back in Venezuela. It's a very heartwarming story of a young man who fled repression, is now in New York playing on the streets and finding that Americans really do have a heart, that there are a lot of good people who are trying to help him out. One night in New York City, not long ago, it was about 2 a.m., and a policeman approached Willie to tell him that he couldn't play in the streets past 1 a.m. But there was a crowd that told him that he had to continue. And Willie took the side of the policeman and said, uh, he's just doing his job. But then the policeman told him how much he personally loved Willie's music. And although he didn't give him any cash because he didn't have any with him, he gave Willie his police patch instead. It was a simple act, uh, but Willie deeply appreciated it, and to this day talks about it as just a great moment of friendship from an unlikely source. And thanks for that, Alex, and thanks to Larry Reed as well with the Foundation 
for economic education. Learn more about their terrific work advancing the rule of law and liberty at feefee.org. That's fee.org. The story of Wooly Artiaga is, well, it's emblematic of so much that's going on in the world. Where people are moving from and where people are moving to is something we track because it tells you everything about a human life. Moving is not easy. It's hard to do. And when doing it the way people are doing it in mass like this tells you a story about one home and where they're moving to, well, a story about another home, a new and adopted home called the United States. Wooly Artiaga's story, America's story, here on Our American Stories.